Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And together, we'll try and answer the question, how do you solve a problem like scrubatizing? But first, Chris, how do you pronounce scuba diving? <laughs> this is obviously a reference to an ongoing conversation. I like that. I was about to say, you've pronounced that wrong, but no, as it turns out, that's intentional. Um, yeah, I guess we should sort out from the very beginning how we are going to pronounce subitizing or subitizing for the rest of this episode. Maya culpa, I pronounced it subitizing for a couple of years and then moved to subitizing overnight when I heard Bernie Westercott pronounce it that way, you know, because I take him as an early maths guru. Um, but no, I've heard it pronounced both ways. So it's up to you, Kieran. What do you want to go with this episode? So I did a bit of reading because I knew we'd be talking about this and I am converted to subitizing. Yes. I'll explain. I'll explain. <laughs> explain why. I want people to know exactly why. Um, yeah, why, why, why you've changed your mind. <laughs> so, you know, even though the idea is quite old, I think whenever it was, whenever it was given a name, it was all about the suddenness. And I'm led to believe that the Latin word subitus represents that suddenness. And so even though it's spelt the same as the prefix sub, which would suggest underneath, it's actually a totally different Latin origin. There's also the fact that most subwords are followed by a consonant. You know, the, the sub would be, would a consonant would then follow afterwards, you know, like submarine, um, although not exclusively. So I think there's enough literary and etymological evidence to suggest that I've been pronouncing it wrong. But when we read things, it's up to us how we interpret them. There's plenty of words that fall into that category. So yes, I'm, I'm on team such mode at the minute um, and we're on the, the subitizing train. Okay, so this episode is all about subitizing. Before we dive into that, do you want to do a what you're reading for? Yes, definitely. Um, so I've been reading, and it's linked to this, grouped objects as a concrete basis for the number idea. And that's Frank Freeman which I think is one of the first references in Douglas Clement's What is Subitizing? Why Teach It? Um, and, you know, it's amazing how he's talking about this idea over 100, what, 110 years-ish ago. And the way he explains it um, is, is just so clear and so powerful that I think anyone who's interested in subitizing starts there. What are you reading for, Chris? Well, I'm going to uh, take things in a completely different direction to today's episode. I spent the last few weeks trying to find bits and pieces to improve my writing because I know that my writing is, well, I like to think it's okay, but it's not something of which I'm particularly proud and I'd like to be. And someone recommended a book called Several Short Sentences About Writing by Verlin Klinkenborg. I think an American journalist, I could be wrong about that, but I think that's the case. It's a really terrific little guide to reading, exceptionally opinionated, which I like when it comes to discussions of reading. So a lot of what he says is subjective, 
but the whole book is glorious. It gives you a lot to think about, plenty to agree with, plenty to disagree with. But the last 20% of the book in particular is really, really valuable. He takes sentences from um, the work of his students, because I believe he works at a, uh, an American college. People who went on to be, in his words, you know, excellent writers, but he picks these individual sentences apart and says why these individual sentences don't do a particularly good job. Um, I, since reading that, I've come to the conclusion that that is such an important aspect of developing as a writer, looking at other people's sentences, um, both good examples and bad examples, and trying to work out exactly why they do or don't work. And for that reason, the second bit of writer, uh, sorry, second bit of reading I'd like to refer to is um, a little collection of short stories that I always turn to when I think of, when I want to reacquaint myself with writing that I see as, you know, a particularly high standard. Um, and I'd highly recommend Anton Chekhov's short stories. You can find that you can find them in collections everywhere. They're obviously old enough that you can find them for free. And um, there's one in particular called The Kiss, which is just perfection. But if anyone out there is thinking about how to improve their writing, I'd highly recommend several short sentences about writing by Verlin Klinkenborg, and then following the advice in that and applying it to things like Anton Chekhov short stories, or just anything that you think is of a particular high quality when it comes to sentence construction. That's excellent, Chris. I'm on, I, I think, the opposite end of this of the writing spectrum um, from yourself. And so I think if we're both trying to improve our writing, because I'm currently trying to take my, well, what's the what's the word, loquacious? Lo loquacious, yeah, lo I, would, I would agree. Loquacious is fair. Loquacious prose. To somewhere closer to the um, refined um, sort of work that you do. And I think that's perfect because at the minute I'm trying to, like you say, look at the writing of other people, particularly in, in an academic style, and see how they reference their work and how they introduce ideas and the thread that runs through it. That's, that's a, that'll be a really useful recommendation. If, if I may say, my, my favourite recommendation from it and something that I really truly believe in is that there is a myth about writing, which is that it's something that that should flow, that it kind of pours out of us onto the page. Um, and then later on, we come back and proofread and edit and this sort of thing. And I'm sure there are some people who can write that way. But my experience of writing and what I feel writing is, is all about the picking apart of individual sentences of working out, well, I've written this in 10 words. Does Is it more elegant in eight or can this long sentence be broken into two profitably? And it's that kind of minutiae that I find so enjoyable about writing that I think writing is. And a lot of people, when I talk to them about writing, they say things like, oh, I'm good at the first bit when I'm just getting my ideas down on the page, but it's just the proofreading bit that I'm not good at. And for me, that proofreading bit is the writing. Pouring ideas onto a page is just typing. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, certainly whenever I was writing Thinking Deeply, I got as much down as possible. Um, and then it, it took the bulk of the time to really go through it. And I remember you talking about, you know, the one sentence for each idea becomes one sentence for the paragraph, and, then, and you build that way. Um, and I think that was really, really, really helpful in terms of, you know, ideas that I didn't realize were there, that if I just sort of continued on this sort of verbal 
I don't want to say verbal diarrhea on the <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> what, what's a better word for that? Um, you know, if I if I, I like verbal diarrhea, I think it's a great expression. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I may not have had some of the ideas that I had. You know, because I'm thinking of chapters that uh, were were particularly tough to write. I went to your advice and said, okay, what's the idea? Let's what what's the sentence? And then from there, things that I'd thought that I hadn't realized I'd thought reveal themselves. I'll just quickly say one of the thing I really liked about this book as well is that it did challenge some of my ideas about the need for precision in what it is you want to write before you write it. I do think that generally speaking, most people who I, when I look at their writing, most people, unless they're professional authors, you get the sense that they haven't got a really precise, a really good idea of what they wanted to say before they said it. So that's still generally the trend. But what's great about this book is it also talks about the idea of the act of writing involving some level of exploration, working out what you think through the process of writing is an equally valuable aspect and being willing to let the writing itself take you on a little journey, um, as well as having a pretty good idea of what you want to say before you begin. So yeah, it doesn't just entirely confirm my biases about planning. Um, so yeah, lots to really like in it. Nice. I reckon that could be an episode on its own talking about writing. So let, let's, let's pencil that in. But the subject of today's episode is subitizing. And I suppose we should start with, well, Chris, what is, what is subitizing? You've already touched upon the Latin etymology, subitus or subito, meaning to arrive suddenly. And this gets to the heart of what subitizing is. It's a, a way of dealing with quantity, with amount, that doesn't involve counting. You can think of it as being contrasted with counting in that it doesn't rely on a step-by-step -step process, but it relies on immediate recognition. Research tends to suggest that on some level, children are born with an ability to discriminate collections on a quantitative basis, um, and that these are or can be considered as pre-mathematical foundational capabilities. These are things that a lot of mathematics will be built upon and that the development of language that comes later turns this idea into something that's a bit more explicitly related to numbers, explicitly numeric. There's lots of evidence that supertizing does exist. And that sounds like an obvious thing to say, um, but you do find people who say, well, isn't it just rapid counting? Isn't, just, isn't it just counting that's become so quick as to be unconscious? But there is evidence that this is definitely um, a way of interacting with numbers or quantities that is separate from counting. For example, reaction times in adults suggests that they can recognize one, two or three, sometimes even four objects at exactly the same speed, which obviously wouldn't be the case if you were counting them individually. Um, there's also evidence in looking at children's um, a performance on tasks relating to supertizing and counting and evidence that actually the, their performance on these two things at a young age isn't tightly related to suggest again that these are two um, distinct ways of dealing with numbers. I guess it's really important to say that supertizing in its original definition relates to what we would now call perceptual 
supertizing. The idea of recognizing relatively small quantities, so usually no more than five or six, instantly. We'll talk about other forms of supertizing, but just for now, it's probably best to focus on this idea of perceptual supertizing. There is some um, evidence also to suggest that we can't quite discern whether even adults really perceptually supertize four or five or six objects. And it might be the case that all supertizing more than three involves a little bit of use of number relationships, but this is, you know, a gray area in the research. What about five, what about five on, a, on a dice? Because I don't think there's any, I think that's, um, that's an example of, you know, I don't think you need to use any other knowledge you can see that representation. You know, the Quinn is a Quinn Crunks, Quinn Conks. Um, it's a very, you know, it's, I think it, that's for me is probably the limit. I think once you go beyond yeah, that. I, I, I go as far as to say six on a dice as well. I don't think we see that necessarily as two threes. I think there's, um, it, it's definitely the case that particularly familiar representations come to represent that number, um, even if we aren't necessarily um aware of it so i'll give you an example we, we also if someone showed me like a, a slice a dean slice and said how many of that is i would immediately say 100 and you could, obviously that's a representation of 100 and i'm making a connection between what i see and the number and the question comes to mind with particularly familiar representations like those on dice whether we are still supertizing or whether there is more of just a an immediate recognition of a particular symbol in the same way that we might do with a letter. I think it gets into a very gray area there um, when we start to say, there are five dots, I know that's five, I'm definitely supertizing it rather than recognizing a symbolic representation. But obviously at first, children's development of recognition of that five will be based upon their ability to supertize those five. It's worth noting as well, if you look at the Brilliant Learning Traje Trajectories website, there's definitely evidence to suggest that these perceptual supertizing skills gradually develop. Although we say, oh, we tend to, sorry, we tend to say that you can perceptually supertize up to five, maybe six, and more than that in familiar arrangements. The reality is that that actually develops over time. So when children are quite young, it, they can initially they can perceptually supertize just one or two or maybe three objects. And over time, the ability to recognize four or five um, develops. It's If you really dig into the um, nuts and bolts of this stuff, it's really interesting to see how they think the... Uh, these numbers are recognized in this way. So there's some suggestion of that your eyes look at all the dots and almost assign a particular almost analog amount to each of the dots that once once you scan them all of them adds up to a certain um, amount that you then almost estimate but it's so small that the estimate becomes accurate there's another way of looking at it which suggests that what you're actually doing is almost imagining connections between them and the connect and the a number of connections that you can imagine is the wrong word. You're not picturing them, but there is this almost network that exists in your mind when there's three, and then there's a network with, when there's four, and then there's a network when there's five, and it's the complexity of that network that allows you to 
recognize whether it's two, three, four. This is really getting into the weeds of it. But the crucial thing really is that perceptual supervising means that you can quickly recognize small groups of objects without having to count them. So that's the essential component of it. I was, I was watching a documentary last week. It wasn't the most, you know, it didn't seem the most robustly researched documentary. You know, it was one of those ice cream for the brain. You're just sort of watching, you're interested in the topic. But it was talking about facial recognition software and how there are like 68 key markers that this one piece of software looks at in a face to recognize a face. And so knowing that we're thinking about subitizing or subitizing and um, old habits die hard. <laughs> um, I, was, I was thinking about how, you know, the brain is obviously picking up these same markers instantaneously. And then, you know, just going beyond what, you know, what we, think we realize um, is ridiculous. The, um, the definition I always go to is the immediate apprehension of small quantities. Um, I can't remember where that, that comes from. And I think the only thing I would add is, and it's more of a question, is it an evolutionarily advantageous defense mechanism or is it born from a defense mechanism? You know, because you've mentioned before, lots of things over there some things over here. Do you think those two ideas are tied together? I'd be stunned if it wasn't evolutionarily adaptive, given that evidence suggests that it seems to be and that an aspect of it seems to be an innate capacity. Um, certainly, and I know, yeah, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if it relates to key things like number of people or resources or whatever it might be. Um, one thing uh, slightly interesting aside i think on on perceptual subitizing before we move on to its you could almost say you know older sibling or bigger sibling conceptual subitizing is this idea of the recognition of different arrangements so obviously when there's one object there can only be one arrangement when there are two objects there can really only be two arrangements though you could see them in different orientations gets interesting when we start thinking about three four five objects because you can arrange them in different ways. Now, I looked into the work of uh, Douglas Clements, and as far as I can tell, and I could be wrong about this, in the three pieces of work of his that I read, two that relate to the learning trajectories, research guides, and the teacher version of that, and one that relates to the paper that you referenced earlier, in each of them, he says something slightly different about what um, arrangements children find easiest. But that said, there seems to be an overall consensus that you can position that you can pick up from the three, which is that the older you get, the more convenient it is, or the, the more readily, the more quickly you recognize rectangular arrangements. So think about the six on a die. Um, and then the next easiest is the objects in a line. And then the next easiest is objects in a circle and then random arrangements being hardest. The complication to that is that there's some suggestion that with young children, the seeing them in a line is easier than seeing them in a rectangle, which I think ties into this idea that perhaps some of what we call perceptual supervising is actually a nascent version of conceptual supervising, which we can dive into now. Do you want to talk about what conceptual supervising is? Of course, I don't think I'll do as eloquent a job as yourself um, with 
perceptual supervising, but essentially what it means to me is the idea that we take one or more pieces of information to make a familiar connection. So for instance, if we wanted to supertize seven, we would see the five and the two. And then our brain would very, very quickly, almost automatically make the connection that this five and two is seven. Um, and so when we are estimating quantities or in sort of processing quantities, when they go beyond the capacity of our ability to perceptually supertize, we then, we, we then draw on our resources that allow us to take perceptually subitizable pieces of information into a, into a, a larger concept. Now, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. The perhaps overly simplistic way I look at it is that it's perceptual supertizing plus some use of number relationships. So if you think about someone um, seeing seven dots on a page and recognizing them, like you say, as four and three or five and two, they initially supertize the two amounts and then combine them using number relationships. So anything where you initially perceptually supertize and then do something with that. You use a known number relationship. If you if you um, perceptually supertize and then go, oh, I know there's four and three, so I'll do four, five, six, seven, that's not conceptual supertizing. It has to be um, recognition of an immediate recognition of, a, of, of an amount that involves use of that relationship without counting. As soon as you're involving counting, I think it's no longer supertizing because it just isn't rapid enough and that's you know part of the definition something that i think um i haven't noted yet now that we've kind of dug into the idea of perceptual supertizing the instant recognition of amounts and through um without number relationships and conceptual supertizing the instant recognition of amounts with the use of number relationships as well something to talk about as well is the idea of the spatial, temporal, and kinesthetic element of supertizing that exists as well. And it's something that I haven't thought enough about when I've talked about supertizing in the past. And again, this comes directly from reading the work of uh, Clements and Sarama. What I mean by the spatial, temporal, and kinesthetic aspects, well, the spatial bits we've already talked about, the idea of seeing them seeing objects on a page or pictures on a page and recognizing them, them immediately and their um, spatial relationship determining how quickly or how well you can see them and that being part of what you do. The temporal aspect side of things relates to something along the lines of, um, for, for example, someone clapping three times, one, two, three, and without you going one, two, three, recognizing that it's three so recognizing things in time ordered in time rather than space without having to individually count them so obviously if someone were to clap seven times if i were to know that there were seven i'd probably have to listen and count them up but if someone just clapped four times and without asking me to count or do anything and then afterwards said how many times did i clap i'd probably be able to say oh yeah that was four so there is this suggestion that you can um, deal with supertizing in a temporal form as well rather than sp spatial organizations and also there's this kinesthetic aspect to it as well if i say to children show me four on your fingers 
they're quite likely to go to a familiar arrangement. You know, they'll hold up four fingers with a thumb hidden, for example. They're much less likely to show me two on each hand or so there, so there is this sense that they will associate over time certain numbers with certain feelings, you know, literally how it feels in their body, how it's embodied. If I say, show me six, if you've got one child who consistently shows you five on one hand and one with a little finger, they will are more likely to go back to doing that again the next time you say, show me six. Whereas a child that's five fingers and a thumb will do five fingers and a thumb. Uh, because they've associated this feeling of what it what it looks like and what it feels like to deal with um, with the idea of um, the, the, the different numbers. They, they've supertized um, the numbers using this kind of physical embodied sense. So there, there is that element in there. However, I do think that over time it is the spatial element of supertizing that is most important to know about and most valuable for teachers. There's two things that come to mind there. The first is listening to the bells of a church ringing, or, you know, for instance, on what radio four, six o'clock, they'll play the bells, won't they? Or maybe every hour, I don't listen to it enough to, to know, but say it's 11 o'clock. I remember with, with my oldest, we were, he's all what time is it well let's listen to the bells and I remember I had to count along with 11 bells because I just couldn't hold all of that information in my head so I, th I think there's definitely a lot to that and in terms of the um the representations with hands the Quentin, Quentin Tarantino's World War II movie where you've got some spies in um behind enemy lines and they can and the way he orders three drinks is um culturally inappropriate you know I think an Englishman uses three fingers, whereas the German would use his thumb and two fingers. And that gives away the game. Um, and then a very typical Tarantino um, sort of shootout takes place. Um, so I, I, those, those things that come to mind, I definitely think there's a lot to that. And in terms of, I know that in a lot of cultures, how we represent number um, physically, so would you say kinesthetically, um, there are big differences, you know, depending on where in the world you are. Um, but I suppose it's how we've come to those, I suppose, would be the next question then, wouldn't it? It would. Just just before we dive in on that, though, you mentioned Radio 4, and I'm someone who occasionally does listen to it. And I think, I can't remember if it's, I think it's on the hour where you get the pips. And it's interesting that we talk about this idea of, well, what are the limits of what we might consider to be perceptual supervising? I think the pips are right on that limit because for years I I, I would it, I always found found it slightly off because I think it's six I think it goes beep 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 I think it does that and I always felt that there was one too many and it always I felt that five would have sounded better and it always just sounded a touch off to me got used to it now um, but I think maybe that was because it was just one more than I could supertize and I had to. Almost, almost had to count them to check with myself. That, oh yeah, that, that that there are six. I guess one more thing to add before we move into how, what supertizing is useful for, um, and all of the different aspects of mathematics, with for which it proves foundational, is to discuss the idea that I've mentioned already about learning trajectories. We've talked about it many times. The website by um, Clements and Sarama called Learning Trajectories is fabulous. But of particular value on that website is a discussion of the learning trajectory for the development of supertizing. 
there are related age groups for each aspect of subitizing, but Clements and Sarama are keen to put across the idea that these are rough estimates and that these can be changed significantly with high quality instruction. So the, the ages are less important than this idea of the gradual incremental development of supertizing that you can learn more about um, on that website. So I'd highly recommend you check that out. Yeah, with my with my kids, I've been watching for when they develop these key ideas, you know, having, having prior knowledge of them, um, you know, for instance, I think it may not be learning trajectories, but I definitely read something about cardinality developing naturally around three and a half years old, you know, with the right opportunities and things like that. And so I was uh, sort of looking at the months go by and saying, okay, <laughs> where, where are we on this, tra this trajectory? I love the idea of, you know, most parents having a little mark against the wall of how tall their children are at a given point. So this is how, how tall they were at three years and six months. And you've got instead a chart of when they develop their sense of cardinality. <laughs> that sounds great to me. Yeah, so it says a lot about what's going on inside my head, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, so did you ask the question, what is, for what is supertizing useful? Uh, I'm not sure I did there. Um, so, well, let's, let's ask it now. What is supertizing useful for? So I thought long and hard about analogies we could use here, and um, perhaps too long. I started with glue, but I don't think it's glue. I think it's the oil that allows the motor to function. And so it's, it can't be seen independent of number and number sense, but I think it hinges, you know, it helps those hinges sort of move and the cogs turn. And, um, you know, you can see I'm still thinking about this analogy as I'm explaining it. Um, but essentially, if you have an understanding of subitizing, if you have the sense of number that is associated with it, then you can use it to develop your understanding in many, many other areas. And so, yeah, so, and that's where I am with the analogy at the minute. I think, you know, if you don't have that early understanding of number, and if you don't have those opportunities when you're young, you know, I've seen a lot of children, five, six, seven years old, who haven't grasped an idea of what subitizing is, and then this ties into the principles of counting. And so any intervention with them will focus on which principles they have not yet sort of made part of, of who they are as, as mathematicians. So I think in terms of its utility, there isn't just one thing, but so many other things depend on it. Is there anything you'd add, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the idea of it acting as the oil in the system, particularly for a teacher as they do, as they move through um, lots of the aspects of mathematics that are to come, I think that's a really powerful analogy, a good choice. The one, the analogy I've tended to use in the past is the idea of um, it being a catalyst for what comes later. In that, you seem to be able to develop certain mathematical skills and knowledge without it but it's just so much more um quickly and fluently achieved with this underpinning um aspect of supertizing there's a little quote here go back to them this is obviously you know the largely the inspiration for lots of what we talk about in this episode clements and sarama say children who cannot supertize conceptually are handicapped in learning arithmetic processes 
I mean, that's a bold statement, but these are people who really know what they're talking about. And it points to the value of supertizing and in particular developing conceptual supertizing with children. Thinking about your analogy and what you said about there being multiple areas, I think it's probably that, that supertizing supports. I think it's probably worth me maybe talking through a few of those that jump out at me when I think about the teaching I've done. So the key aspect really of supertizing that is most useful really is the idea of unitizing. It's how it's, it's, it's the first introduction really to the idea of unitizing. When you see five on its own and say, oh, that's five without having to count up, there is a recognition that that whole thing represents five. So first and foremost, it develops an understanding of cardinality, like you mentioned, or it helps to develop that understanding of cardinality. Obviously, when we're counting, we can support that by saying one, two, three, four, five, there are five altogether, that extra moment afterwards where you express the idea that the last number I finished on when counting represents the quantity. With supertizing, there's a straight there aspect of it. That's five. And what that links to is the idea of unitizing because children then begin to recognize that, oh, so that's one five, but it's also five ones. That whole thing is a five. And it's only when you start to pick apart all of the different ways that that immediate unitizing is valuable for that you realize why supertizing is this foundational skill so for example number relationships we be begin to show children maybe with something like double-sided counters or um, or just regular counters we show a group of five and we can see that they're organized in such a way that you can perceive two and three and children start to see oh yeah that two and three together equal five well, it's a different business if children are going one, two on one side and then one, two, three, and then all together they equal one, two, three, four, five compared to just immediately seeing, well, there's two, there's three, and the whole thing is five. It, 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 I think it points to the value of working particularly with small numbers initially to help children develop part whole understanding. Because if you're working with three, four, five, and maybe six, and looking at the, these part whole relationships, Children are understanding these um, algebraic, effectively, ideas, and they're understanding commutativity of addition. They're understanding associativity of addition, but all through supertizing. It's all rapid. They can see, oh, two and three and one make six, but so does two and one and three. And in no case are they being slowed down by having to go one, two, one, one, two, three, and altogether, that's one, two, three, four, five, six. This immediate recognition is foundational for the develop their understanding of how number relationships work and that operates through this idea of unitizing sticking with this idea of unitizing if we think about um using something like 10 frames to immediately recognize nine so you immediately recognize nine in a 10 frame either as five and four or as one one fewer than 10. So you've got this, you've got this immediate recognition of nine and then maybe immediate recognition of five. And your teacher then shows you that, look, if I move one of my counters from the five to the nine, nine and five is equal to 10 and four, which is something that we can um, add more quickly. So this calculation strategy is completely catalyzed or as you say, almost the learning of it is, um, lubricated by 
these um, this sorry this immediate recognition of numbers again if you're having to count those nine and then count those five and then do the same thing once you've moved it count those ten and count those four this calculation strategy is going nowhere but if when you're learning it you can see the nine see the five and then see the ten and see the four then this has somewhere to go this is a visual representation you can learn quickly equally when we think about um when we first introduce multiplication through arrays it's one thing to say, well, here's three lots of two and go, well, there's two, two and two. If the children are immediately recognizing two, two and two, then that's a much quicker and more fluid way of learning than if they're having to go, oh, is it one, two, one, two, one, two. Oh, yes, my teacher's right. The immediate recognition of those smaller amounts allows you to introduce the idea of multiplication and children to keep up with what you're discussing in a much more um, capable way. Even as you get further, when you say like, oh, three, three lots of five, uh, sorry, like let's say um, two lots of five is 10. If you're able to say you can see this as five lots of two and as two lots of five, again, how much easier for children to grasp that if they are immediately recognizing the two fives and the five twos rather than having to count them up. So this development of perceptual supertizing and conceptual supertizing feeds into so much of mathematics. I mean, there's so much more. The one more thing that I'd absolutely talk about is um, place value. So when we are dealing with the initial stages of place value, we're often, and, and actually a great deal of our place value teaching regardless, we're often dealing with deans. We're often um, using deans as a way of representing different numbers. Again, if we say to children, well, I've put under the visualizer or on the whiteboard, there are three tens and five ones, and we can think of this as 35. How much easier for children to deal with that if they're not having to count up those three tens and those five ones? And actually, there is, you can do that with um, full 10 frames as well, and getting children to the stage where they can go, oh, yeah, that's 36. Why? Well, there's three tens and six ones. And being able to do that immediately it just, as you say, catalyzes, lubricates instruction, just makes it flow, allows you to do the things that you want to do as a teacher um, and keeps them on board. I think it's, it's like a, a master skill uh, that underpins so much of mathematics that they learn later. What's really interesting is that most of those ideas that you've mentioned, I have categorized as threshold concepts you know, those concepts which are, you know, which change the pupil's sense of self, you know, even adult sense of self, um, but it were also the most difficult to get to grips with, you know, for it, to, for it to be a threshold, you're going to need to change completely how you see mathematics and how you talk about mathematics. And, you know, unitizing place value are, are two of those key ones I think our pupils encounter. And so the fact that subitizing is so important to our later success in those, you know, I think speaks to the, the importance and, and why it's deserving of a, of a really long conversation, you know, between teachers. And also one thing I'm thinking about is Tall and Gray and their idea of proceptual reasoning. And I think what you described feeds into that later on, you know, you're almost, you're, you're taking slightly more complex ideas or certainly more cumbersome ideas and you're looking at the idea of the process and the concept at the same time and what they say is that the pupils who don't see procepts 
are doing twice the work for half of the payoff. And that's exactly what the quote at the, at the start of this little bit of the conversation was speaking to, was, was pupils working harder for, for almost for, for less reward, so to speak. Yeah, and I, th I think a really, of, of the things that I discussed, I think the most uh, apt one or the most um, immediately obvious one that relates to this idea of proceptual understanding would be um, the compensation that's going on when we do nine plus five, because obviously the concept there of compensation is not really something you can pick apart from the actual process of taking um, one from the five and moving it to the nine, the process of um, how you would deal with that and the concept of, um, of compensation are all wrapped up in one. And again, it's underpinned, as we say, by the perceptual and then conceptual supervising that you want children to do. Something I, I should have mentioned and didn't as well there is that that whole thing of, oh, well, nine plus five can be converted to 10 plus four is predicated on the idea that 10 plus four is easier to add up. And obviously our place value system makes that the case, but that's still based upon effectively some level of conceptual supervising when you're showing it visually, because you want children to go, oh, well, there's 10, there's four. And, and without that, it doesn't quite work in the same way. So yeah, uh, we could talk about this all day, but I think the key thing is that there are so many elements of mathematics anything really to do with arithmetic that are underpinned by perceptual and then as part of that eventually or as an, or as an offshoot of that conceptual supervising. Which is why we need our most skillful teachers early on in our pupils' education careers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And why we need to focus high quality um, professional development into everyone's understanding of early mathematics. It's something that I bang on about all the time but my partner who is a secondary teacher tells me at least maybe she's just being nice but she says to me that the things that she's learned about early mathematics partly from these discussions um, and just from chats we have have supported her in her teaching of uh, in particular struggling mathematicians at secondary school so the idea that early mathematics supervising etc is just for early years teachers and um, key stage one teachers is absolutely not the case and I absolutely agree with you with the idea that we should be thinking about how we can get the most capable mathematics teachers or some of our most capable mathematics teachers working uh, with the youngest children. I mean it could be an echo chamber of sorts but I think the conversation has definitely moved forward and a lot more people are talking about these the importance of early number um, than when I first became aware, you know, what maybe 10, 12 years ago. And it, it seemed like if you knew this, you know, you were like the Oracle, but now there seem to be lots of people with a really good understanding, or, you know, certainly having those conversations out there. I, mean, I don't know if that's social media or if it's just, you know, you know that whenever you, you see a car or you buy a car and then you see lots of that car <laughs> when, when you're, when you're driving, and, um, you know, it, it could definitely be that, but it, it feels like certainly a lot of people are having this conversation and um, quite widely. It's, it's worth noting that um, really excellent books, I'm not going to name them here because it might be a bit unfair, but really excellent books that I recommend to people that I say, you know, this is a really great place to start for getting a broad view of what's in primary mathematics, have pretty scant discussion of things like supervising. Mm -hmm. 
brief mentions. Um, and I think it's more important than that. So yeah, it's something to be, it's something to be aware of. So like if, if you come across a, um, or if you're given a text, for example, on your initial teacher training that purports to talk about every aspect of early mathematics or mathematics generally for primary teachers, then be ready to see that maybe supertizing isn't mentioned there and just to take a little bit of time to explore some of the things we're going to discuss later um, to make sure that it is something that you as a teacher do have a grasp of. So how can we develop supertizing in our pupils? I think develop's a, good, a really good choice of word in that question, Chris. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think um, develop's the right word. I, I've had conversations where the question has been, well, how do you teach supertizing? And, and, and a lot comes down to how you define teaching. And I, and I absolutely think you can teach supertizing, but it isn't something necessarily, particularly when we're talking perceptual supertizing and even the initial stages of conceptual supertizing, where you can really just explain it and children grasp it and then we just need to practice it. It, it, it doesn't really work like that. There really is um, a great deal, as there is with much of early mathematics and later mathematics, really, that is experiential about it. It really is, it really involves dealing with objects in a variety of circumstances. And I'm gonna talk about some of the more formal manipulatives that can be used to develop supertizing first. So, I've already mentioned them, but counters, particularly double-sided counters, are a fantastic resource. So, for example, being able to um, have five objects and to see them in different, or five double-sided counters, I should say, see them in different arrangements, and then turn some over to be able to recognise that. Oh, yes, I can, I can perceive um, these different amounts using the aspect of colour as well as their, you know, spatial arrangement is a really valuable thing. I think using counters generally in ten frames is an really valuable bit of understanding there are there are um aspects of understanding number that children who are good at arithmetic seem to pick up um or, or seem to have that are well worth developing so for example the idea of numbers six seven eight nine being considered or being considered as five and a bit so see being able to see six as five and one quite quickly seeing eight as five and three this this five and a bit idea that we can develop using a particular arrangement in a 10 frame is really valuable. Um, but in short, I think the use of 10 frames, recognition inside 10 frames and recognition of objects outside of 10 frames um, is really valuable. Before I talk about any other formal manipulatives, I think it's really important to talk about informal stuff as well. So if we only worked with um, double-sided counters, while there are circumstances where you might want to keep the, manip the manipulative simple so that children can focus on um, the aspect of mathematics that you're looking to explore, at the earliest stages, I think it's really important that children deal with a, a whole variety of objects, you know, bottle tops and bears and, and whatever it might be, so that they develop this understanding that three is three is three is three, regardless of whether you're talking about bottle tops or bears or claps or people who aren't in the room or whatever it might be. So I think we have to be um, aware of the importance of using a variety of real world objects with children at the earliest stages when developing supertizing. 
that said, I'll just mention one more really valuable manipulative or pair of manipulatives that I think do a similar job. Uh, Rec and Rec um, are really great for supertizing um, because the, the downside of double-sided counters is if you say to children, what I'm going to show you some double-sided counters. I want you to tell me how many there are and you show them five or six on a 10 frame or elsewhere. They can supertize that, no problem. But if, they've, if they're the ones with the double-sided counters and you say, show me four, the natural tendency will be then to count them out. One, two, three, four. You have to move them or touch them or do something that encourages counting. Well, if we want to develop supertizing alongside counting, we want a manipulative that children can do in one movement. And this is where Wreck and Wreck or bead strings to a similar, a similar uh, extent come in because you can say to children okay one finger push show me six and they'll push across six and that could be perceptual supertizing or in the case of um, a wreck and wreck because these are effectively five white beads and then five red beads organized on a rack and there are two rows of them they can show you six in one push and it's immediately seen as five and one so this five and a bit structure that i mentioned before is um, made explicit so wreck and wreck bead strings are great for these immediate uh, show me stuff. What else would you rec recommend in terms of developing supertizing? Before I go any further, now I feel it's like the right time to sort of suggest that anyone who's interested in the wreck and wreck needs to check out the work of Amy High, particularly her book, Wreck and Wreck 101. She's done a few talks at the virtual maths conferences and um, 26 is the one that's closest to this recording. I think it's two weeks from now, possibly will be, it makes sense to have this episode quite at the same time. So if you, you're listening to this in the morning and you haven't got your ticket for maths conference, <laughs> um, you know, do that and um, because you get access to the videos whenever you want. You know, I think that the success of the sort of governmental direction towards the wreck and wreck relies on the training of a large number of teachers because as great as it is without the requisite training it's not going to have the desired impact and i think amy's a great place to start you know in my head i'm thinking right do i want to get lots of copies of that book ask my teachers to read it and then work on that next year you know because we've done four years of cpd we're thinking about really niche ideas at the minute you know really maths and um, pck stuff this could be an avenue to go down because I think um, there's a lot of potential there and she appears to be the person, you know, I think Bernie Westacott has done a lot um, on it too. So, the, you know, his, um, his tweets, his videos that he shared from his time in, in Africa also really, you know, immensely valuable. Um, yeah. So, but I think this is the right time, you know, as you mentioned it um, as a way to help us develop subitizing, you know, I think that, that, that those, those two, are your Amy and Bernie are your go-to. Um, I, I really like, you know, the, the fact that you've chosen develop because I think because, you know, be, I'm coming from the position that this is something that develops naturally, biologically, um, you know, because I'm coming from that, this is something we've developed as a species over time. And that kind of stuff doesn't tend to lead it, lend itself to instruction, you know, as, as, you, as you really well described. So I'm thinking about how many opportunities can I give my pupils to develop and to refine the automaticity with which they 
sort of go through this. And I think, you know, early years teams will be fantastic at using different resources and, you know, things from the environment. So if anyone's in primary and they're thinking, oh, well, I need some ideas for informal manipulatives, I reckon you spend a day in your in your early year setting and you just steal as many of their ideas. You know, great artists steal, you know, take as many ideas as you can from them. I think the thing that I am sort of probably most passionate about in this area is the use of games. And I've spent a lot of time, you know, because one of the, one of the things I have to do as part of my job is develop the community's engagement with education and mathematics and our families. And I've, in the past, you know, previous schools, many previous schools had one person turn up to parent workshops. And, you know, because they don't necessarily want or have any interest in hearing how we teach maths at school. You know, it's different from whenever maths was taught, you know, a large, to, to an extent. And so engagement isn't necessarily something that that lends itself to, you know, here's how we teach maths in our school. You know, it's important that there are places they can go if they want to find this out. But I spend a lot of my time getting our parents and carers to do the maths, to do things that are mathematically engaging with their children, you know, with their, their young people. Um, and so I'm going to have to be very careful with how I pronounce this. Um, but the, my favorite game is shut the box. And, um, you know, <laughs> Um, because, you know, I've got, I've got a video on YouTube that goes through all the different layers of mathematics. You know, my, my boys, look, we've been playing it since they were no age. And one of the things we did at the very start was you can close the box by subitizing the value on your, um, on your die. And, you know, you can start with just one. And so then you've got the numbers one to six. But then if you bring in two, then, then you get that conceptual subitizing as well. Um, and so I think games like dominoes, you know, and I think I may, if I ever find the time, look, because we, we, we do a lot of stuff with dominoes. You know, for instance, there are, there are versions that explore multiples. You know, I think there's, there's a Spanish version called Matador, and it looks at the seven and five times tables in different variations. Um, and then obviously you've got card games as well because cards will have a very sort of structured um, representation of number. Um, and so I think what I really like about the games is that they, they all start where pupils' understanding of number starts, and then you can go really, really far into it. And so in terms of opportunities, I'm thinking of, of to develop, I'm thinking about well, what games are there that exist? And then when there, there are lots of places, you know, I think even if you just search on, on YouTube, there will be lots of examples of, um, of mathematical games that will help us develop this. Um, and from my point of view, having our families do maths, but, you know, on, but not do maths is, is really powerful because, you know, we're almost bringing the social aspect um, back into the... You know, because with, with technology, it's very easy just to be um, using things that are current. But these games have existed for a long time. And I think families enjoy them now as much as they did, you know, 100 years ago. It's interesting. One of the questions that seems to crop up on Edu Twitter quite often is, how, what can I recommend to parents 
for the development of their child's uh, mathematical capabilities, particularly, particularly at the start of education. And again, the best advice often relates to the things like you say that incorporate um, aspects of mathematics into children's choices and to things that they already enjoy and naturally into other things. So for example, be just being aware of and using numbers with children when you're talking about conversation. Oh, how many shoes have you got there? Oh, have you fit? How many socks have you got there? And you know, that sort of thing. Obviously in those cases, it's going to be two, but there are other, you know, smaller numbers and larger numbers that you can deal with in your everyday conversations. I mean, alongside all of the wonderful um, exploration of shapes, shape and space and block play and all the other things that you can do in terms just of number, I, I agree entirely with the idea of um, playing games with dice in particular, dice, dominoes, etc., are fantastic. One of the things we've not mentioned so far as a manipulative or a sort of manipulative for dealing with this sort of thing, or we haven't, I haven't in this section, but I'm gonna bring it up again, is the use of fingers. Just being able to say to children, show me eight, show me seven, or how many's this? And developing supertizing that way is such a fantastic quick way to, um, help children develop these particular capabilities. Alongside the manipulatives and games that we've discussed so far, I think there are certain generic activities that are really valuable for supertizing. So anything that involves um, a quick show of a number um, or an amount, I should say, and then hiding it away and then saying to children, well, how many were there? And that can be under a visualizer or that can be on a big card or however it might be. Anything that requires children just having a quick peek at something, not giving them time to count it, and then saying, oh, how many was, how many was that, is uh, really valuable. That can be in, um, run by the teacher, but it can also be in games, so matching pairs games, where you say to children, you're allowed to take a one-second peek at, at three or four cards, and then you can you find two that match, or something along those lines, where you use um, memory games effectively. I think there's value, uh, let me rephrase that. I, I think there are so many aspects of early number that can be taught effectively through hiding things. Games where stuff is hidden is great for mathematical capabilities generally, but also for supertizing. So if, for example, you show children um, three or four or five counters and then say, okay, close your eyes, everyone. I'm gonna hide some, open your eyes. How many have I hidden? They've got this development of relationships between numbers if you've hidden some of them. But they also develop their supertizing because you say, well, how many have we got here? Well, that's three, lovely. So how many must be hidden? Yes, you're right, it's two. And you uncover it and show it. And again, without necessarily reverting to counting. This is not to say that counting isn't an um, incredibly powerful and useful process. It's just the thought of where possible getting children to supertize and, and counting where it's necessary or when you specifically want to develop children's counting abilities. Um, yeah, it's, I would also say in terms of resources, Maths Learning Centre and their 10 frames, uh, MathsBot has uh, 10 frames where you can click and it will show you another random um, set of objects for children to supertize, so that's great too. The one other thing I'd probably mention is Jack Hartman 
he was a someone something I actually came across via the teachers in my school and thought, oh, I quite like this. And then I saw Bernie Westercott tweet about him and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I definitely like this then. <laughs> I feel much more confident in thinking that this is a good idea. Um, he's a uh, an American educator, I presume, who does super ties songs on um, you could, which you can find on YouTube, and these songs show numbers in lots of different forms. So in ten frames, not in ten frames, in different organisations, and it shows children or gives children just a short amount of time to spot the number and then say the number and. The only downside to this is that you will have his subitized song in your head for probably the rest of your life if the last couple of years of mine is anything to go by. One thing I'm thinking is, and it goes back to the CPD you and Matt do, and one of the activities is where you, you show a quantity, you make it disappear. Is there an optimum amount of time when working with young children? Because obviously with adults, it's pretty rapid. It's like they're gone, they're gone. What sort of time are you leaving between the appearance and disappearance of a given quantity? I think it, it depends on the stage of development that they're up to. As long as it's short enough that children are not encouraged to begin counting the objects. I think you can make it pretty brief as long as though maybe a couple of seconds at most, as long as you're not you know, pressurizing in any form the need for anyone to have got the correct answer yet so to say oh how many did you spot i spotted four is that what you spot you know that, that that's very different to you know putting children immediately on the spot in a pressurized way um but i would say a couple of seconds is at most and then bringing it down especially for perceptual supertizing maybe leaving a little longer for conceptual supertizing in short as long as it isn't so long that children start to individually go one, two, three, four, five, etc., um, I would say is is fine. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, you you want to you want to be watching out for when they start counting, you know. And you could even get the pupils to respond with by showing on their fingers, um, because then you're, yep. you're getting that almost double thought process. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Being able to say, okay. Yeah, show, show me, match what I've shown you there, but on your fingers is a great um, way of dealing with things, as well as saying, you know, how many is it? And you can also tie into this um, counting as a way of almost checking. So you could show six and then say, yes, brilliant, we recognize it was six. We can also count to check that it's six. One, two, three, four, five, six. But we recognized it straight away, didn't we? Well done. You know, so you're encouraging supertizing, but also seeing the value of counting. Um, as well. So yeah, I think these are complementary processes. It's just that over the years, we've spent so much more attention, so much more of our attention, and we focus so much more on counting, and it's time for supertizing to um, get a little bit more attention as well, I think. Absolutely. So the, the Tadabe family, they love to read, they love to find out more. Where can we go? to find out more about supertizing? I would say the, the best starting point is the paper you've already mentioned. Um, Douglas Clements's Supertizing, What Is It? Why Teach It? is a great introduction. It's brief, it's readable, and you can come away with that with uh, a lot of the basics, including 
the practical bits and pieces that we've talked about. I think uh, learning and teaching early math, notice the lack of S, it's an American book. So learning and teaching early math by Douglas Clements and Julia Sarama is excellent, um, really, really accessible. There is an accompanying book that talks deeply about the research behind it. That's, um, that's a bit more niche. That's really if you're interested in it. But the learning and teaching early, early math is, I don't think it's particularly cheap. I think it's in the 20, 25 pounds sort of range. But you won't regret a purchase of it if you're interested in early mathematics. However, if you're a day-to-day -day classroom teacher, you want to get the basics. I think supertizing, what is it, why teach it? by Douglas Clements is excellent. A book that you've mentioned a few times in the past as well, Making Numbers by Rose Griffiths, Jenny Back and Sue Gifford, talks about um, other aspects of number sense and many, many other aspects of early mathematics. But I think does a really good job of showing teachers visually really great examples of ways that you can develop supertizing and other mathematical capabilities. I guess the last thing to mention would be a small plug, I guess, sort of, in that I have done some work in the past on supertizing, some videos, some bits and pieces. Um, if there is demand for it, I would happily share that or make a slightly different version because I think there are tweaks that I could make to it. But frankly, you've probably taken most of the stuff that I know about supertizing from this episode anyway. What about, what about you? Is there anything that I've, I appreciate, I think I've mentioned some of the key stuff there, but is there anything that I've missed that you would highly recommend? Yeah. Um, I mean, what is supertizing? Why teach it was definitely the first, is definitely the first place to go. I really like the references in the first paragraph. You know, you got the 1912 one that I mentioned at the start, and then there's the 1925. I think it's Douglas. Um, the name escapes me. When the show notes are eventually up to date, I will add it. I'll add a few in actually. But there's a lot, you know, I think the early discussion around subitizing has this clarity about it because they were establishing the parameters of the field, you know, and like we say, like conceptual subitizing came along later. So you've got, you can see this discussion happening. And, you know, I think the people who listen to this podcast will really enjoy going into those sources. And, and as far as I can see, a lot of them are open access. You know, certainly they're, they've, been, they've been around long enough. You know, I think you've got stuff from 1942, 1974, um, that really establish sort of trains of thought in supertizing, you know, because you've given a really comprehensive list so I'm going to give a really niche addition to it because there's not much more to say. Um, but, but I really enjoyed starting at the top and working my way through because you see the journey um, and you see this field develop, which we don't often have the chance to do, you know, because sometimes there'll be so much written about something that the field becomes really, really sort of dense um, and you can't see the trees for the, for the woods, so to speak. You know, on your CPD, I've been lucky enough and you've been gracious enough to share it with my teachers, my particularly my early years teachers, and they absolutely love the CPD. You know, their response to it has been 
unlike anything I've been lucky enough to receive <laughs> in terms of the 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 praise and the um, the awe that has been inspired, you know, by thinking about early number. Um, and so I would recommend that if, you know, you always want to tweak your work, but whatever you've got now, I have no doubt will be immensely useful. So I think people should take you up on that offer. Obviously, I'll have to take my cut before they can have it. But I think if we if we set the price of maybe three hundred pounds per <laughs> per video, you know that that should be fine. In all fairness, I'm thinking about the the stuff that the work that I shared with uh, with you. I mean, I imagine that they're most uh, they were most um, impressed by the first half, which related to the principles of counting, because that's Matt Swain's work. So my stuff in supervising <laughs> was probably just a bit of a bonus on top. Um, but yeah, the, the part of that that relates to supertizing, I'm more than happy to kind of to share if people are interested. Um, you mentioned about the, the exploring the history of supertizing. It is, it's, it's, I mean, of the two books that I mentioned for uh, Clements and Sarama, the one that's a bit more niche that goes into the research. If you look into some of the references there as well, it looks at the, the history of um, supertizing and counting. And in particular, there seems to have been a bit of a back and forth between researchers about whether supertizing was this uh, ability, sorry, was an ability upon which counting was based or was it, you know, somewhat the other way around or was, is there a kind of a fundamental idea of counting and then supertizing comes from that. So actually some of the historical conversation has been about the, which one is kind of primary in those two and it's 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 interesting if you're intrigued by that sort of thing the way that you and i can be occasionally excellent so it's been another fascinating conversation from start to finish chris thank you very well, much i think that, i think that's for the audience to judge <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I make these primarily for myself you know the cpd i get talking to you guys all the time is a uh, second to none yeah, well, the, the feeling is mutual. Yeah, I, I, I've loved it. Thank you. And so all I have to say is thank you very much for listening. I hope you find it equally fascinating. And we'll, we'll see you next time.